I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Tessa, who's not an evil doctor science scientist. It just sounds really cool. And Harvard professor, Michael McCarthy. Hi, and Cher. this is Cher Scarlett. Now, what would we call you, Scott? Cause like, you're like an activist. You're a muckraker, <laughs> right? You're a, you're a coder. So maybe you could tell Mike and Tessa maybe you should call and, me and Jack. everybody who's been watching this a little bit about yourself, what you've been doing. And it's definitely not boring. So um, I have been a software engineer for uh, 16 years. Um, I re most recently worked at Apple. Um, I worked in global security. Uh, I worked on tools in, that global security uses to do all the global security things. <laughs> That's about as specific as I can be. Um, as you know, Apple has a very secretive culture. Um, and so, you know, to be safe, we tend not to talk about what it is exactly that we work on uh, unless it's public facing. So uh, yeah, I am a single mom. Uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 15, um, which was actually right after I had taught myself how to code. Um, and I, you know, have been figuring out how to best work for my situation um, pretty effectively since about 2014. Excellent. So, um, Cher, so nice to have you with us. Um, so, for I first wanted to kind of uh, ask a question around um, your your mental health and you being a real advocate uh, on that front. I've read a few of the articles about you and it seems like you've been really forthcoming with um, having bipolar disorder. And I'm really curious as to what your feelings are around how employers can best uh, support their employees that, that do have um, either have, you know, mental health needs that, that require more support and I also, or what employers should be doing in general as it relates to mental health, because I think as we see the next generation of workers, Gen Z coming in, they're far more transparent and open about mental health. And so we'd love to get your perspective on what employers should be doing to support, support their employees. You know, I think it's important to start off by saying that growing up with this diagnosis and going into my twenties, um, it was shameful. You know, it was something I didn't want to reveal to people. And, um, you know, one, one man that I, uh, was in a vehicle with, I, I had gotten pretty close with him and I told him, and he literally pulled over on the side of the road and asked me to get out because he was afraid of me oh and I've never hurt anyone in my life. Um, I've defended myself in a fight, but you know, I've never gotten into a fight. I've never, you know, been dangerous, but the, you know, I talked to him later and we're friends again now after that. Um, and it's because of the portrayal of certain mental health disorders in the media that gave him the impression that I was dangerous and it completely overtook, you know, I had known him for almost a decade at that point, completely overtook his impression of me, you know, and I think that that's an important thing to talk about is, you know, the stigma um, has been so pervasive and really these things, you know, I didn't know that bipolar disorder was a disability under the ADA. I know it always, it hasn't always been, they, they more, uh, I don't know exactly how recently, but I know more recently they broadened the definition to make sure that they weren't leaving anybody behind. And I think that the biggest thing that I've recognized, especially in my advocacy at Apple, is that what is needed is transparent education. You know, the first step to getting people 
your employees to be able to tell you or have their doctor tell you how they would be their best self to be the most productive is letting them know that whatever it is that they have um, or that they're dealing with is covered, you know, that that they can come to you about an accommodation. And if you're not telling people, hey, here's here's what disabilities are and here's what accessibility looks like at our company, they're not going to know. And because of the stigma, they're not going to be seeking to find that out. So sure, do you think there should be some kind of you know, training program or onboarding when you're a new hire so that people can get a sense of I know a lot of people don't really know what bipolar is. They they sort they understand there's a it's a mental health, um, but they don't really get it. And I'm curious if you think that there should be like legitimate training on that. I do. Um, and one of the things I actually suggested to Apple um, was that the accessibility that accessibility training be mandatory for all employees. Um, I, I wouldn't say they were too keen on that idea, um, but it, you know, they have, there's separate education for management and for employees, you know, there's, there's half of it that's helping other people who don't have these issues, learn how to speak respectfully to people who do or to handle these situations respectfully when these things come up. Um, but there's also the other side of it, like, you know, like I was just mentioning, if, if I had read accessibility training and discovered, you know, long ago before I learned, I learned in 2014 that um, bipolar disorder was covered under the ADA. Um, if I had, you know, had training on that um, and been made aware of those laws, which I didn't even know existed for a long time, you know, I would have been able to say like, hey, you know, maybe these periods of time where I'm really struggling to be productive and I'm making up reasons why I can't come into the office or why I can't come to work, Maybe it's because I need for at least part of the time to be working from home. And I actually didn't figure that out until I started working remotely because I wanted to spend more time with my daughter and I had some custody issues going on with my ex that made it so that I really needed to relocate from the DC area. And I literally just asked you know, my managers, hey, do you think I could try working remotely so that I can deal with this custody stuff in, in Missouri? And they gave it a shot. And during that time, I recognized that all of these cycles where I was going through, where I would be, it, it was like, if I was going through a manic episode, it was very hard for me to focus in the office. I wasn't you know, not completing my tasks or anything. I've always managed to make it work. Um, but the bigger thing was during my depression, when I was struggling to get into the office, I was like working from my bed because I could just put my laptop up and code. You know, I didn't have to worry about, you know, showering and, and all of these things that when you are in a deep depressive episode and for some other people, like it's other reasons is, you know, anxiety, whatever. When I removed that barrier, suddenly I could just go straight to being a productive employee and those periods started to more or less disappear. Um, and, and I think that had I known that that was a possibility long earlier in my career, I wouldn't have hit, hit so many roadblocks where I was feeling like my mental health was making it so that I couldn't work. And I was understanding why so many people with, especially bipolar one, 
don't have jobs. They can't hold jobs because they go through these periods of time and either they get fired or they stop showing up because they're like, how do I live this way? And almost by happenstance, luck, I happened to discover that for me, I need at least part of the time to be working remotely from for to be my best self. And to me, that should be something an employer wants. If I'm coming to you and I'm like, hey, I'm going through these periods of struggle because of my bipolar disorder. I need to work remotely through these times and I will be the best employee most of the time that I can possibly be, you know, within reason. They should be thrilled that I know that much about myself, that, that that's something I can offer. And so for some employers to come back and be like, oh no, well, you need to be in the office. So we're not gonna offer you that accommodation. You have to either find a different job or whatever. That to me is appalling. You know, it's almost like you don't trust yeah. that I know sorry <laughs> that i know my, puppies. my <laughs> yeah, we, all have, we, we heard the barking before on my side on mike's side yeah so it's so it's all good hey tessa i'm sorry sure and that's what happened with apple right because they tried they wanted everyone to go back into the office mm -hmm. and you were saying wait a minute this is not fair number one i don't live within the vicinity to go into the office i'd have to uproot my daughter myself and the i the you know you let me do this this was the deal you know, what's, what's interesting is that I was actually on a distributed team, so I didn't have to actually worry about those things for okay. myself, but I talked about those things because there were other employees who were coming to me, you know, and saying like, hey, you know, I, I'm bipolar or, you know, I have severe ADHD, um, you know, other mental health issues. I work so much better at home, or, you know, I moved during the pandemic to be close to a family who was, um, you know, having health, physical health issues because of COVID um, or financially, you know, my partner lost their job because of COVID and we can't afford to move, you know, closer. There was all these things that were not about personal preference that were about needs. And that's why I started sharing my story um, in regards to Apple's remote work policy. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, I, I caused a lot of confusion um, within my leadership and sort of my individual sort of, you know, they, they try to break up concerns to being, what's your individual issue? How do we deal with it? And so there was a lot of confusion about, you know, like you're, you're already permanently remote. You don't need to worry about this stuff. And I'm like, I'm trying to tell you that I know that. And I think that everybody else that, you know, needs to work from home at least you know part of the time or what have you within the scope of what they know is is their, them doing their best work they need that too and it, especially for the other people who are doing the same work that i was doing um, i really struggled with the idea that i have you know i have this accommodation even though i'm not being granted at it at under the ada like i for me it's like i'm being able to do my best work because of this, I want everybody else to have that same opportunity. And it almost felt like if, if they aren't gonna have that opportunity, I don't want it either. I would rather go somewhere else that's gonna treat everybody equitably. So you bring up an interesting perspective that this could be viewed uh, positively. Like we could have more productive people, they, they could have a, a more consistency, more reliability if we allow people to you know, work where they need to based on what's going on that day for them. And I'm curious, you know, the, the one thing that employers always go a little crazy about is, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, oh, if you're not in the office, I can't, you know, peek over your shoulder and make sure you're working. 
So what, what would you be willing to do as an accommodation back to the employer so that they could see that you are being productive? And I know a lot of people don't like the spyware and stuff, but is there, is there something that, that you would be comfortable with where they could just be assured that, okay, yep, share's working, uh, we're good. Anything that, that you would be willing to have them to be able to, not necessarily monitor, but- so Yeah, 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 I, 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 get, I totally get what you're getting at. And I, I actually think that we kind of have done that, uh, not on purpose, but because of the pandemic. Um, honestly, the pandemic for me was so bittersweet because you know, having the health issues that I do and the life circumstances as a single parent, the way that things became more accessible to me over the past two years was life-changing. And I, I know that like so many people have suffered. I've, I've lost people um, that, that I've lost people close to me um, in the pandemic as well. And I, I wouldn't wish that sickness upon anyone, but at the same time, like this is stuff that I've been saying we've desperately needed since 2014. And now here we are, so we were scrambling to make this happen so that people could continue to work. And we have been. You know, we've shown that many people are much more productive at home. Um, and I, I don't believe in the idea of uh, butts in seats is a good indicator of productivity. I think that the outcome is um, what monitors that productivity. And I don't think that there's any difference between what people were doing previously and what people are doing now that shows that they're being productive. I, I I worked a job um, a very long time ago when I was pregnant um, for a couple of months uh, in an office building. And um, it was a company that did drop shipping of um, like big equipment for construction. And there was only myself, another woman and the CEO <laughs> as it were that worked at this company and he never had anything to do. And so he basically would start monitoring our computers all of the time. And as any normal human being that spends eight hours or nine hours in our case, because we didn't have paid lunch all day somewhere, we are not working the entire time. We're probably working for a total of eight out of the nine hours, perhaps even eight and a half you know, hours. But sometimes what might we do? We might check our bank account. Uh, we might check to see if our, somebody sent us an email. There are things we do in the day to break it up that are completely normal. And one of the times when I was checking my bank account, I, he called me in and because at this point I didn't know that he monitored my screens from time to time. And he was concerned about how little money I had. I mean, I was a single mom making, a, you know, barely over minimum wage in Missouri, <laughs> you know, like, or I wasn't a mom yet, but I was pregnant, you know, making barely over minimum wage in, in St. Louis, um, you know, and he, and I was like, this is very invasive, you know, like you, I, I don't believe you should be monitoring my screen at all. If you don't think I'm doing my work, then you need to find someone else. And, you know, he didn't have any real, you know, he didn't have any issue with the work I did. He didn't have any issue with the work output. He just was bored and wanted to check and see what I was doing. And that so is a micromanagement authoritarian environment that we have been essentially moving away from at least over the past decade for for me that i've gotten to a point where i feel wait, like wait if me. you say if you say he's worried that you don't have enough money the simple answer he could have gave you a raise <laughs> i was so i was hoping for a different turn of that story where we could say oh you know okay so he was gonna offer me more money or kind of a bonus for the holidays to get me through no, no. he said that i what should take jerk. financial literacy classes 
It's like, why don't I hand over you what it's like making $7 an hour? Yeah, thanks, boss. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. How I took $7 and now I'm a multimillionaire, right? Yeah, sure. That, that works. Funny anecdote. Right. I actually met him and got this job because I was cleaning his house prior to that. And I, yeah. I mean, I was essentially homeless for a couple of months and um, that's how I met him. And he was like, oh, he's like, you, you should be doing, you sound very intelligent. You should be doing much better work. Come work for me. I'll pay you more. What do you get paid? $5 and 15 cents an hour. I'll give you seven. Great. Okay. <laughs> okay. But Hey, sure, can I, sure, sure. I always thought that the tech companies were much more progressive. So naively, I would think that they would do all these things on their own behalf to say, hey, let's let's make sure we're taking care of people with mental health issues. Let's take care of what have you. But I guess that's not really the case. You know, I think it was the case pre-pandemic. I think it is in a lot of ways. And I think it's hard to see because some of the biggest companies are being a little more reluctant um, to offer this. But for me, I can tell you the difference between me looking for remote work um, in 2016 and now is it's monumental. Like I, I maybe could find like 15 things that I would apply for back then. Um, and, you know, maybe interview it five of them or something. Cause that's a good, you know, ratio. I usually get picked interview now, but at the point I interviewed at 50 places that all were open to remote. Um, I wasn't interested in working all, at all of them. I was trying to gather some research information, um, but there, there's more popping up in my inbox and recruiters of companies I've never heard of that are still paying incredibly competitively that are coming to me saying like, hey, we're open or remote, we're open or remote, we're open or remote. So we're looking at like where I could only find, you know, maybe a dozen or so to now, I would assume what is hundreds based on the volume of uh, recruiting emails that I get. So I wanted to to um, pick up on a word that you said around transparency. So I and and kind of pivot a little bit because it seems like you have been an advocate for transparency. I, I teach marketing and I talk to the students a lot about how the information asymmetry between uh, companies and consumers is those walls are coming down because consumers have access to more information and can really find out what companies are doing, especially like who's in their supply chain and all those types of things and be able to, you know, have consumer choice and make choices around the types of products they buy based on how the, the company operates. And it seems like you've been a real advocate, whether it has to do with pay and equity, whether it has to be, you know, transparency around, you know, making it uh, accessible for people to talk about mental health around uh, the NDA and non-disclosure agreements. So can you talk a little bit around how you've come to become this warrior, (laughs) really to kind of demand transparency on a number of different levels from companies? You know, what's interesting um, to me is that I, I sort of got into tech with people assuming things about me that weren't true to the positive. Uh, you know, I, obviously I sound very educated, um, but I only have an education up to the 11th grade. I dropped out of high school, but people don't assume those things about me. You know, they assume I'm, I'm college educated and I have a degree and I did, I never lied, but I definitely leaned on that. Um, but really it's just because I read a lot. And when I started to see gatekeeping about things that like I was a sex worker once, um, because that's what I had to do to survive, um, you know, I dropped out of high school and I'm, I'm seeing all of this rhetoric about, you know, CS degrees and 
you know, a lot of it is very gendered. Um, and, and I ended up being called out as this unicorn as somebody, I, I think somebody said I had a master's degree in computer science and I just had to cut in and be like, look, you think I'm this thing and I'm not. And actually I'm the thing that you're saying doesn't belong, you know, and, and fine, if that doesn't belong, then I don't belong. And that was very, for, for a lot of the people who were on the other side of the gate, you know, that sort of tore down that for them. It, it was uh, jarring in a way, you know, the, the beliefs that they had about me. And I realized in that moment of people kind of realizing in this raw authenticity that they were so wrong, that the reason that I was able to get in, in spite of, you know, letting them believe these things about me, you know, that I, that I was a scholar or whatever, um, that I also was able to get in because I was so authentically myself that people could build a story, you know, about me in their head and decide that they wanted me. And when I was honest about the things I didn't know, they took that to be confidence in my education level. And to me, that was the signal to me that the most important thing that we have is, is honesty. And that gives us so much power. And um, shortly after this, I had ordered um, something called a LexisNexis report. And I had had my identity stolen many, many times because I um, this very unlucky person only has four different digits in my social security number. So it gets randomly selected by like SSN generators all the time. Um, and I was trying to like clean up my credit and I knew about this LexisNexis thing because I had gotten declined for something. It said, contact them. And I am not kidding you. This information that they sent me, this thing was like this thick because I am somebody who orders a lot online because I have mental health problems. So I don't go out a lot. And they had everything about me like it was a disturbing level like people who i had been roommates with uh things that they bought online things that we bought online together you know uh, i mean just every single email address i had ever used since i was a teenager was in this enormous stack of documents and i realized that there is so little forthcoming transparency about the data, the data that is being collected on you and how it's being used. And the fact that as consumers, we get this idea that these, these companies, you know, we're almost a little beholden to them, you know, it, the customer is always right. But, you know, in, in reality, I call and I try to get something fixed and it is incredibly difficult to get, to get anything on my terms, you know, that as a consumer. But I realized that we have so much more power than they allow us to know. And fast forward to now, I'm recognizing that that is the case with some of these very large companies too, who know that employees, just like consumers, they are the, the bread and butter, they're the product, they are the power of the wealth that is being generated by these companies. And I honestly believe that they're worried that employees are starting to take it back. And when we look at something like accommodating people, that's almost the making a concession, you know? So they don't want someone like me to gather up everybody who has, you know, uh, is neurodivergent in their company and say like, hey, these, all these people work better remotely and they're covered under the ADA. You need to follow the ADA's advice because other people are doing their same job remotely already and give them those accommodations. They want all of these people to come to them individually, you know, so that they can 
try to deny the accommodation or talk them out of it or, you know, whatever it is um, that they choose to uh, do in those situations, but they really don't want us to recognize that as a group, we have power. And that's what's been happening. Re this is what happened to you recently, right? Where you tried yeah. to lead an effort to get paid transparency within Apple and they didn't like that too much. Well, and it was more than that too, because I, you know, I had gotten the idea about the wage transparency survey from others who did it before me at other companies. Um, when I had a, a trouble finding out what my salary was going to be after I moved, because Apple does, uh, you know, geographic based adjustments. And I only just wanted to know so I could plan, you know, what my new salary was going to be, what I was going to be making. And I, they, no one would tell me. And it wasn't until um, I actually was moved and my pay was changed that I found out what my raise was. And prior to that, I had tried to do some sort of crowdsourcing research to find out what I was going to be getting paid. And I got this impression that it was going to be a 10% bump based on other people's experiences, but that's not what I got. It was lower than that. And so I went on this website called levels.fyi and I looked up other salaries in the area um, and I found that the only other person with the same years of experience as me in the same level um, doing similar work on this on this particular website was also a woman. And we were making significantly less than the other people uh, that were men. Um, so all of this was self-reported, of course. So I wasn't thinking like, oh, obviously there's a wage gap. I'm underpaid. I was like, there's some information here. I'm going to keep looking. So I went and dug in other areas and I just kept finding the same problem. So I just went and asked a question in a women's affinity channel, a women's affinity channel in Slack, if anybody was interested in doing a wage survey. And one had actually been started that morning by someone else. A couple of hours later, that person is reporting that the people team has asked them to shut it down because it's a prohibited survey because it's gathering information about gender. And in my brain, I had just gone through all of this, you know, labor law stuff, learning with the news of Blizzard, where I also was an employee um, at, you know, learning about labor laws and stuff. And I had just read about the NLRA. And so I knew that they couldn't say that it was a prohibited survey because it was being gathered only by non-management um, amongst themselves. And so I just was started saying like, hey, I think this is against the law. Here's the law that I had just recently read linked to the NLRA. Um, and, you know, um, so they started working with the people team on a second one. And during that time, I got um, information that it wasn't the first time that it had happened, that people had tried to start a wage transparency survey in corporate, and it was shut down by the people team as a prohibited survey. And when I was told that the new one, which was without gender and, you know, following their security concerns was also shut down, even though they had done it the way that they had asked, I was like, well, I know the law. Um, I didn't even care anymore about the, the, you know, whether or not there might be a pay equity issue. I'm like, if there is, or there isn't like that, you know, you guys will have to deal with that no matter what, but this is our right as employees. And I am going to defend these other employees' rights, whatever reason they have for wanting this, I'm going to defend their rights and I'm going to put up this wage transparency survey. And close to 3,000 people ended up participating in it. And, you know, whether or not the outcome, you know, uh, was what we wanted, the, re the reality is, is that they, we were able to do this wage transparency survey in spite of, you know, their best efforts to shut it down. 
And when we, when somebody from the data team um, approached me and said like, hey, we've started actually looking at some of this data and the results are troubling. You know, again, we know this, this is self-reported and, you know, there, that does give some, you know, heavier, you know, difficulty in looking at the results. But we also had a very large pool of data that we were able to kind of verify that the numbers that they were reporting um, in terms of diversity in the company and things that we knew it pretty closely mirrored that so we could safely say that this is a, a pretty good look at you know what we think you should look at, but they wouldn't meet with us as a group. Um, not even just two of us, they would only meet with us one on one about our individual concerns. Sure, this might sound naive and Mike Tess, I'm, I'm curious what you would think. Why wouldn't they be more open about the compensation and salary? I mean, what would happen? What would go wrong well, if they did? <laughs> I know that sounds very naive and wise, but, uh, If they find an uh, inequity, especially as it relates to gender, then that means they have to reconcile that, and that can be very expensive. And so, it, do you think you also know, be, you know, now I've that only heard of a few companies that have who have on their own taken upon themselves to do a full assessment to to really audit the entire company and and be super transparent about pay, and then give. And basically, it's like giving a lot of the women a twenty percent raise, um, because on the on the average, that's how you know that's that's the pay inequity is around you know, twenty twenty one percent. But Tessa, what about this too? I just I guess answer my own question. That could probably open the door for a lot of lawsuits, right? If let's say yeah. you find out women <laughs> pay significantly less, or a, a, a certain minority group is less, you're all gonna say, hey, sue not only sue now, but for all back wages. So as I'm thinking about, right, then it's but I so think they're kind of scared then, right, Cher? Yeah. I mean, they're running well, scared like, holy crap. That certainly, if, if and, and as, as, Tessa point, as Tessa pointed out, um, you know, it's it's not even, it's it's expensive to reconcile those wage differences. But I think that one of the, some of the more troubling data that kind of surfaced in the way that we were looking at it versus the way that Apple was presenting their diversity data is that a lot of the women are people of color, which isn't a bad thing, but it's a significantly lopsided, like 50-50 um, for people of color in Apple and the data that we gathered um, was white versus non-white. But for uh, the men, it was only like 15%. It was a significantly um, lower number. And when we started looking at the roles in that isolated data that was more, you know, racially uh, accurate to what we you know see in our normal life is that it was more lower levels with commensurate experience you know to men that were in higher levels um, and support roles and retail roles you know these 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 inequities were far beyond dollar differences they were fundamental systemic issues in the way that in the work that was being done, how they're being promoted, what they're being hired in as at a level, um, you know, there, there were much deeper issues that we were surfacing and discussing um, that none of which are addressed by say, you know, um, uh, Arjuna Capital comes in and they do a, a gender pay audit um, for Apple. Um, they actually did it at Starbucks as well, uh, right after they had announced they had 100% pay parity. And my managers and me were like, actually, we think that I'm being underpaid. Um, and, you know, 
ended up getting an adjustment from our because of our Juno, uh, our Juno Capital's audit, but being told no for six months that my pay was not under, you know, I wasn't experiencing any inequity. Like, you know, so they, they are doing that work, but there's this other side that Arjuna is not capturing, you know, which is deeper inequities that are being hidden by the way that the company hires and promotes women and people of color um, that appears to be different than it is for white men. So I, I know um, we're coming to the end of our time. So I wanted to ask a question because I was I was looking at your Twitter this morning and saw that you're part of um, some legislation that is now being introduced as it relates to NDAs. Uh, as we kind of um, end this end this uh, this podcast, can you talk a little bit about what your future work is and maybe this legislation that you're working on? So. Uh, definitely never <laughs> anticipated this happening. I think that the the most I had ever done in government was when I was uh, in elementary school. I saw a baby bunny get run over outside of uh, where Microsoft was expanding their campus. And I wrote a letter to the city demanding bunny crossing signs that eventually made it there. <laughs> Don't know if it was because of me, never got a response. Um, but I never saw myself. And I think of people who watch me, I'm very anti-establishment in the way that I present myself because of how I where I come from. Um, but I've learned that the only way, you know, to start moving the needle is to work with what you have. And this is what we have. I did not expect uh, when I emailed a Senator that she would email me back the next day. But um, I had spoke with um, Ifoma Asoma who um, co-sponsored the California no, Silence No More Act. And I, I asked her, and this was before it got signed into law, like, I was going through this, you know, sort of being intimidated into silence thing. And I knew, I knew what was coming. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. Um, but I was like, what do I do? How do I protect myself and other workers in Washington? Because we have Google, we have Amazon, we have Microsoft, uh, we have Starbucks. We have these huge companies that I know are using the same tactics that I'm being subjected to. And what's worse is for more vulnerable people like retail employees, warehouse employees, you know, the, the employees that we don't talk about as much, they're experiencing this at a much more detrimental level than I am. How do I bring this legislature? I'm not a law professional like you are. I'm a software engineer. And she, you know, gave me uh, some organizations to contact. She told me to look for organizations that have lobbied in labor law before. And so I did. And, you know, the first person who emailed me back ended up being this senator, and I talked with her about this document that I received on October 15th, the one that I sent to the SEC and to uh, Nia's partners, um, that I, I believed, you know, that what I was looking at was, to me, should be illegal if it wasn't already, because it certainly felt unethical and wrong. Um, and so that's, I ended up getting connected, you know, with the Senator and now, uh, rep representative Liz Berry, um, who confirmed that they would do this work. Um, they had, uh, Senator Kaiser had, re had previously, uh, worked on a bill, um, through Chelsea Glasson's, um, advocacy around her not being able to, uh, file a complaint for pregnancy discrimination. So recently that bill that extended the time in the state of Washington for people who are pregnant to file for pregnancy discrimination was enacted. Um, and so Chelsea had reached out to her as well. And so the two of us, you know, coming to her and saying, you know, like, hey, you know, she had the pre-existing relationship and I had this actively happening to me at the time. 
gave them the motivation to do it this session so quickly, which is amazing. And um, I ended up also getting in touch with um, the Dignity at Work Act, um, people who are working on legislature around the country um, to promote respectful workplaces. And I want to continue doing work in this space. Um, I guess lobbying is what it's called. Um, for me, I'm just advocating for like people to have a healthy, you know, working environment. Um, but I guess that's what it is. And I want to continue to to do that and push that work. I've been in touch with local lawmakers um, who have had issues with bullying in the workplace. Um, King County actually had that issue in its council. Um, and hopefully, you know, we bring more laws that are protecting um, employees and people in the public sector, um, you know, protections, uh, that report came out today about what's been going on in the military for a long time and everybody being, you know, with all the women being gagged from talking about their experiences and, you know, how can you possibly dismantle a system of harm if nobody's allowed to talk about what's happened to them? Absolutely. Well, congratulations wow. on all your work and thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's really quite amazing. And Jack, I'll let you say the uh, final bit on that. I, I appreciate you being so open about everything, Chair. That's very rare, you know, that you just put everything out there and you take these risks, which is amazing. You know, um, I got to tell you, I wouldn't. I'm a chicken, I guess. <laughs> I would, I would kind of keep quiet and go through it. So I applaud you. And I think we need more people like yourself to see injustice, see where companies are maybe not treating people the right way and taking action, even if it means losing your job and your livelihood and you go for it. And that's just remarkable. And you know, we're, we're, we're behind you. And if it's okay with you, we'll keep in touch. So as you go on that journey and it seems like you're not gonna stop. So there could be lots of stuff happening. Feel free to let us know. I, I, you know, I, I think I can speak for my contestant. We'll, mm. we'll love to help out any way we can. And we like to kind of just be part of the journey and keep us posted and we're glad to have you on so we can kind of broadcast it more and let more people know and i think that's the key to it as well you know the, you know because i was i'm sure if i was not aware of all how this is happening in my contest i'm sure for some stuff as well that the more you talk about it the more you go you know share it it opens the eyes of people Right. So and and so I, I think if I could say one more thing, just to kind of, of circle back to the beginning of our conversation about my bipolar disorder, a lot of people ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think that that's, you know, cause I've been, I've been homeless. I've been at the, I've been a minimum wage worker. I've been through so much, you know, um, that I, that's, that's why I, I never want people to go through the things that I've been through. Um, but somebody the other day asked me how, and I realized that it's literally because of my bipolar disorder, the impulsivity, the bursts of energy that are reckless in a way, you know, they make me, I wouldn't say unafraid, but they make me willing to accept whatever comes my way, because no matter what, I know that I've been through worse and I can get through this too. Wow, that's a great way to end it. That's the... <laughs> That's well said. And from something that's challenging, you turn it into a positive in a way that gives you that energy and drive to make it happen. Uh, so, wow. So great. Good luck with everything. Keep us posted and really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Thanks so much amazing. for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Cher. Thanks. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank, Thank you, Cher. I think you're going to be uh, really inspirational to a lot of our viewers. Right? You've got <laughs> courage that we all need. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I can tell you one thing. I yeah. never imagined in my life that this is <laughs> where I'd end up.
<laughs> well, it's not end up. You have a lot more to go. So I'm I know. Really, I can't wait to see. I'm waiting to. I'm waiting to hear the book and the movie about this yes. stuff. So, so we're wait, I'm waiting for this next chapter. Maybe I can write it. So I haven't written a book like that. I keep but, trying but, to write my book, and yeah. I, I'm trying to start at the end, and it keeps changing. <laughs> but that's good. That's good. It makes it good. Make for a good movie down the road. So, so yeah, we'll be part of it. Well, thank you so much, and have a great week. Thank weekend. you. Sure. Thank you so Take much. Care. Bye, Sarah. Thank Bye. you. Bye.